get started back into our series that we've been apart from some time now. Matthew chapter 15 is where we last left off. Actually, at the end of 14, we'll pick up in the 15th chapter of Matthew. And as we begin at verse 1 this morning, I'd like to only go down through about verse 9. Matthew 15, beginning at verse 1 through verse 9, hear the word of God. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you may have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near unto me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Our gracious Father, we ask that your Spirit would attend the preaching of your Word, and pray that you would illuminate the text to our hearts, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. And that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray that we would see Christ and hear his teaching and his lessons to us. And be brought back to the old paths of the scripture. And we pray that you would teach us good and mighty things. In Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know, I was kind of tempted to start off the sermon with a rendition of From Fiddle on the Roof, a tradition but I think I'll spare you and myself that embarrassment. But as we think about tradition, tradition are these formative practices. May I say in light of our Sabbath festival, they are a liturgy. Uh, You may not call it that, think about it, uh, but they are that thing that has been handed down that we have embraced and so affects us in some way. Traditions can be very powerfully uh, good in our lives. Or they can be deceptively devastating. But traditions run deep. And they are very influential in our lives. We will all hand down traditions to our children, whether you think you will or not. But what will those traditions be? Traditions. When you think about tradition, traditions... Um, that is the handing down of something like a statement or a belief or a legend or a custom or some information from generation to generation, especially by word of mouth or even by practice. A tradition is a long-established or inherited way of thinking or acting. It has a lot to do with our mindset. A continual cultural pattern of belief with its practice is a tradition. So traditions are, are, they're going to be unavoidable. Even if you say, I don't believe in any tradition, that in itself will eventually become a tradition. Uh, There's going to be traditions in your life. Traditions are a way to train our children. 
And they will affect your children, whether it be by the traditions of the world, these liturgies of the world, or whether it be by traditions that you have for them that can be healthy. They learn by tradition. They become ingrained in our lives in a very deep way by tradition. And the Bible has so designed it in this way that those liturgies are that which instructs our children, and it has given us proper uh, framework so that when they come and ask the questions, uh, then we know what to tell them. But some of those traditions and practices that we give, and some of them are, are divinely inspired and sacramental in nature, they are designed in such a way because God knows how to prompt the questions of those that seek to learn after them. So they are very powerful. They're not necessarily bad. They can be. In fact, they can be very good. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks of this on a number of occasions, and the Scripture alludes to this even more so. 1 Corinthians 11.2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. We are to continue in the apostles' traditions of the teaching and the and the breaking of bread and prayer and the fellowship with the saints, see? Traditions are such that everybody has them. And in fact, you may not even be aware that you have a tradition or a, such a practice. And in fact, we have certain traditions here. We, we actually meet at 10.30 for our uh, Lord's Day morning, and that in some ways has become tradition for this congregation, but we might think of a traditional time of the morning service being more like 11 o'clock. So there are things that go on that we are not even aware of. This coming Friday, we have the joy of, a, of another wedding. And where is Miss Caroline? And this is the last Lord's Day that you are Miss Stauffer. You think about that? And when we see you come back in a few weeks, you will be Mrs. Ryan. And there's traditions that go along with this. We, we see those traditions. Well, we'll see a beautiful bride uh, adorned in a white uh, wedding dress. We'll see and behold a radiant purity of what Christ is making His bride out to be through the washing of the water of the Word. But what about that ring bearer? Where did he come from? What's, what's the tradition there? I don't know. You don't know. But we're going to have a ring bearer. I think, Michael, right? <laughs> In terms of, uh, of, of, of that, because it's tradition. We've done that. Now, whether it goes all the way back to an Egyptian practice... Uh, or whether it goes back to a medieval practice where they carried a ring on the tip of a sword. I don't know, and you don't know, but we still do that. And it's incorporated into a tradition that we do now. That's okay. So even when we don't know the answers and what lies behind them, we have traditions and practices that are handed down to us, and we go through these things, oftentimes embracing them. And traditions can be so influential that it is often quite difficult in some cases for one to remain objective in discerning the truth. 
Tradition can become so powerful that it becomes truth to us when in fact it may not. There are a couple of caveats to this. We do need to realize that tradition is very influential, and while it can be quite good, it can also cloud our judgment of the Word of God. And secondly, we can also act independently and throw off too easily, too quickly, the tradition and forsake the teaching of our fathers by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And Protestants have done a lot of that. Actually, we fall are faulty on both sides of that knife edge. Untaught and untrained tradition can easily become a law of man that will act as a replacement for the Word of God. And in fact, Chesterton said, if you remove the Ten Commandments from the Scripture, you are not left with no commandments, but you will be left with 10,000 commandments of men. Because we will easily go in there and replace it with all of our rules and regulations. Now, we can be trained by what we think is right, but what is actually wrong. That we can be so blinded to the fact that we replace the teaching of Scripture by our own traditions. That was the problem that Jesus was facing with the Pharisees. And the problem was... Not that they just had traditions, but their traditions were displacing and supplanting the very Word of God. And so trained did they become in their tradition to see things a different way, that it was so nigh impossible for them to even see the truth for them when Christ comes and He teaches them of the truth. You remember the Christ cleansing the temple? Do you know how many times he had to cleanse the temple? At least, we don't know how many times he had to or should have, but we do know of two times that he did. One was at the beginning of his ministry, and one was at the end of his ministry. He goes into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, and he cleanses the temple, and he casts out the money changers, and he says, why have you turned my house of prayer into a den of thieves? And he's reflecting after the words of Jeremiah chapter 7. But so were they in their tradition that the following year, they just kind of went right back to doing the same thing. The following year, they kind of went back to doing the same thing. Right at the very end of his earthly ministry, he comes into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, goes right to the temple, takes the cord of whip, and he drives them out again because every year they've just been kind of doing this. And the one driving out didn't really affect them, and so he has to do it again. Now, that's that's the power of this liturgy of tradition and the influence. Sometimes the way we have always done things has such a shape to our character and it has formed our thinking in our lives that we are oblivious to the fact that what we are and how we think and how we live may not be truthful at all and perhaps maybe have even supplanted the Word of God in our lives in certain areas. Sometimes we have very good intentions, even good motives, or take a strict stance for the cause of righteousness. What we think is right, then, may actually be wrong. 
Or perhaps we've taken some principle of the Word of God and we've made some personal application with that principle that over time, the application, which may be good, becomes a matter of principle itself and our consciences become forged not by the principle, but by the application which has become the new principle. I think we're guilty of that a lot. At the heart of the issue here is what is right before God? Jesus is giving us a lesson on defilement before God. How to live pure and undefiled in a holy life may be a little different than what we might be used to thinking. So it is very important for us to be very teachable, to be humble. Especially even from our past ways, while not casting off and changing the landmark of our fathers and removing those memorials which are designed for us to ask the questions for truth. But it's important for us to remain humble and teachable, uh, to be able to experience the fullness of Christ's joy. To, to be willing to be changed. To, to show that something was not right in our thinking and therefore even in our practice so that we can then come into a better and fullness of Christ's life. With less hindrances and fuller joy. Now Jesus and His disciples often kept the traditions of the Jews in the first century. But he also intentionally broke with them from time to time to promote a truth. And here is one occasion before us. We see in verses 1 and 2, there was a Jewish leadership that heard about Jesus and his disciples breaking with the tradition of the Jewish customs. And so concerned were they... And remember, Jesus is still up in his ministry around the Galilean area... But Jerusalem, further down to the south, is where word had gotten all the way back and they heard, so they sent a delegation of scribes and Pharisees to go find out. And so we find that the scribes and the Pharisees from Jerusalem come questioning Jesus about the practice of his disciples and why they are not holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, Matthew, you might remember, is a gospel that is written primarily to a Jewish audience, so he's taking some things for granted here, whereas Mark gives us the same account, but he is not writing primarily to a Jewish audience, but Gentilian or Gentile audience, and therefore he's giving some further word of explanation. I'll read you a couple of verses from Mark to help fill in uh, those gaps, since I'm a Gentile and you're a Gentile. We need, we need all the help we can get, right? So now, verse 2 of Mark 7, now when they saw some of the disciples eat with bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Now the Jews not only had their Old Testament scriptures, they have their Torah, as you have your Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus. I didn't want to leave that one out. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's your law. There's the law of Moses. That's the Torah. 
This is what the Jews embrace. This is what we embrace as well as part of the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They had the Psalms. Somewhere along the way, in addition to the Torah, there was this oral tradition that had been established and handed down from generation to generation. Now when that actually came about, I do not know, but what they believe happened is that when Moses went up on the Mount Sinai, not only did God give Moses the the codified written Torah on these tablets of stone, but he also gave the oral tradition that started with Moses and then began to be the interpretive key to the written law. Where that particular belief came in in history is what I'm saying I don't know. But it did. And they believed that the oral tradition which accompanied the written scriptures was the interpretive key to know how to interpret the Word of God. In fact, I'll give you a little quick illustration. I get a lot of mileage off of my uh, Orthodox Jewish friend, uh, so I'm going to give you another little illustration there. When I had a conversation regarding this very subject, he said, you know, when Moses went up on the mount uh, at Mount Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments. And I'm saying, yes, I know that. And he says, but he also Did you know that the Ten Commandments were not in solid stones? They were in transparent cubes. They were same-dimensional thickness as they were width and height. And they were two cubes. And written on the, the side were the Ten Commandments, such in a way that you could look through this translucent or this transparent stone to the other side, and it was not mysteriously reversed. And where did you get that oral tradition? I mean, well, I don't believe that. He said, well, that's true. It happened, and, and God showed this, and this is the truth. And he goes on, and you had a lot of fantastical kind of things that come out of that. And pretty soon, when we're getting into an argument uh, or a debate over something of the law, like we did over Psalm 110 that we just sang, and I said, you know, uh, who is talking here? Yahweh is saying to my Lord, sit thou here until I make your enemies your footstool. And we had this conversation. I had my Hebrew Bible. He had his Hebrew Bible. And I said, who are we speaking of? Yahweh. Yes, we agree. But David is the king of of the realm at that time. And David is the author of the psalm. And David, who is the king, is saying, Yahweh is saying to my Lord. I said, so then who is David's Lord? Sit there for... I said, that David's Lord is my Jesus. And he seemed stumped for the longest time. Because in his Hebrew Bible, he also has the titles, a Psalm of David. And those Hebrew titles, we think, are also inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, not what your modern version actually says is what the content, but the title, a Psalm of David, written to Asaph, those are inspired. He had that too. And all of a sudden, he had the Yeshurika moment. Oh, 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 I got it. Down in the footnote of his Hebrew Bible, which I did not have in my Hebrew Bible, he had the footnotes of the oral traditions that this was not written by David at all. This was written by such and such about Yahweh speaking to David. And so he kind of put it all together. And I said, where did you get that? He goes, oral tradition. It becomes the interpretive key. See? We laugh, and there is some humor in some of that fanaticism, but I'm afraid that we 
are all too like that in areas that we are not recognizing. We need to be sensitive to that. Those oral traditions, in order to be preserved, <clears throat> they were then codified and written down and so that the oral tradition, would, which was actually, actually supposed to be oral, were now written down, and that's what we call the Mishnah. The Mishnah really comes from a word which means to, to repeat saying over again, and then uh, that was then taken along with some of the commentaries on the oral and the written law put together in what we now know as the Talmud. The Mishnah explains how hands ought to be washed. And so you have this washing of the one hand in this ritual way, and the washing of the other hand in the ritual way. Never do the hands come up this way because the impurity of the water that can run down. But then after that, you do a second washing to wash the impurities of the first washing over that way, and then the hands are dried in this fashion. This is not personal hygiene, people. This is defilement. This is the issue of spiritual defilement before a holy God. This is taking those principles out of Levi or Leviticus and putting them into practice that the profane should never come in contact with the holy. Now that's a principle. And here is the application. But the application for them became the new principle. So when we consider what the issue was that Jesus and His disciples were facing, this was likely begun with some good intentions. We do not want to profane that which is holy. This has to be cleansed. But the application, when it became a matter of conscience, then replaced the Word of God, and they were left not even knowing. The application itself may not have been wrong in itself, but the manner of the thinking that accompanied it was the issue. This is a finer point of discernment that needs to be understood. So tune in very carefully here. Again, the tradition itself may not be the problem, but the mindset that accompanied it may be or is. Okay? Now, there's a way to test this to see if you can discern between the principle of the Scripture and the application inherent with that principle or the tradition. So if you're going along in life and there's a particular application to a principle, right? Try to discern between the application and the principle, between the tradition of your practice or your, your life of how you apply these things and, and the, the application itself. Try to make a distinction between those two. This is the application. This is the principle. It, it's a good thing to do with your children. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do this? What's the principle behind this practice? Now the question is, if you change the application, will your conscience be bothered? Not change the principle, but change the application. Can you then live at a different application, maintaining the same principle, but where your conscience is not bothered? See, there's a test for you. Is it become a does your application become a matter of conscience? Now that, that's at least one help, and I'm sure there's 
going to be some holes that we could poke in that, but that's at least a test for us to sit back and, and begin examining some of ourselves and our traditions, the way we do things, why we do these things. Is this principle and application? What's the difference between the two? Now, if there is a conscience issue, there could be a problem with your mindset, not necessarily the application, but with your mindset that accompanied your application or your tradition. Now, Jesus often kept the traditions of his, of his day, but he also broke away from them from time to time, and there was no conscience issue in either keeping them for some sake or for breaking away from them in other ways. That's why Apostle Paul could, could circumcise Timothy, but yet keep Titus uncircumcised when he goes to minister. Circumcision in his day, in, in, the, in, in, in the context in which Paul was in, uh, ministering, was neither here nor there. Now here's a second point, and this is really the issue that's coming to a head right here. When tradition actually takes precedent over the Scriptures, then those very traditions become wrong. Sometimes it's just a mindset that accompanies a tradition, but now traditions themselves can become wrong along with the whole mind that goes with them. And that's what's going on here in the second part of this passage. And that's why Jesus begins with the rebuke in verse 3. He says, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? And then he brings up an illustration. This is just going to be one of many he could have brought up, but he brings up an illustration, and he pulls from the fifth commandment. And he says there, you know, God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. He not only reiterates the very clear fifth commandment of the law of Moses, which they would have been familiar with, but he also shows and brings alongside it the very penal sanction for those who would break this law, which shows the seriousness of the law and the example that he's giving before them because it was a first-degree offense worthy of the death penalty if you live in a dishonorable way towards your parents. It's a sin of the highest offense. But verse 5, But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever prophet you might have received from me is a gift to God. An expression, Corbin. It's Corbin. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you've made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. Now, if you can enter yourself back into the narrative and perhaps maybe think about some possibilities of this, I think it can be instructive to us. You know, caring for your elderly parents has always been with humanity. It will always be with humanity until the coming of Christ. And it is often more difficult back in that day than it is today. In order to make life a little easier... The Jews perhaps began to interpret the Scriptures, and this likely took place over time, not just a 
black and white meeting of the church council to get together for this kind of thing, but a little bit here, a little bit there, a nuance here, a nuance there, a little subtle shift in this here. And all of a sudden, you have something that is just skewed completely off of the commandment of God with the new tradition. And what's going on here is, is this, is in, in a nutshell. A Jew, according to this, new tra- or this tradition that Jesus is pointing out, could get out of taking care for his parents if he claimed that the monies that would have been used for the care of his parents would be used in a different way and reallocated to a gift to God. In essence, what's happening here is that the free will voluntary offering is made somewhat compulsory so that the funds given, which would have been used to care for the parents, are now dedicated to God. A free will offering is something that you don't have to give. It's not a compulsory thing, but now it's being used and manipulated by the lawyers in order to figure out a way. And then there was an additional addendum to this, that was essentially added, if one would say and shout out, Corbin, it is a gift, then they could simply keep it for themselves. And voila, crafty lawyers have come up with a way that the Jews wouldn't have to be so burdened with all of the constant care and resources they were pouring into their parents. They could claim something for God but in a way to put it in their own pocket. And over time, they began to embrace this as a tradition, completely displacing the Word of God. Now, those things happen very subtly. Those things happen over time. And those things are not beyond us doing the same kind of thing. Let me give you just kind of a potential evolution. Let's go back and retrace this. This is not how it happened, but it potentially is a way that it could have evolved. Perhaps a Jewish religious elite was having an unusually challenging time caring for his cantankerous elderly parents. And it was requiring a lot of his time and a lot of his money and time away from his ministry to God and time away uh, from taking care of the higher orders of the spiritual life of which he had been so called. After some discussion with some of the other leaders, there was some sympathy for his cause and perhaps a little allowance made for him to back off a little bit so he can dedicate himself more fully to the things of God. After all, we are to serve God and not men. Or the priority of that, anyway. So monies that were formerly used to help care for the parents could now begin making some minor adjustments to be used for ministry purposes. The lines get a little skewed further when those ministry purposes uh, became part of the necessary sacrifices and offerings for the entire uh, household of Israel. A little further nuance of interpretation, uh, where now the gift, including the free will offering to God that may be given, after all, it trumps, this gift of God trumps. I mean, isn't God more important than than men? Isn't He a higher order? And and we have to obey God and not men. We we have to, to give service to God first and then to Uh, Our parents and children, yes. God before men. Some time goes by with a little of this mindset creeping in on this slippery slope. And they begin to think uh, differently and begin to sink into a further practice that becomes a little more common. And then rather 
um, uh, a rather self-focused and, and brilliant, eloquent scribe and lawyer um, with an eloquent pen comes up with compelling applications now in this re- new, newer context that since a free will offering is not really compulsory, it really served no needs or purposes at all, practically speaking, then it really is quite optional, is it not? It's a free will offering, by the way. It, it, it's really the heart that matters, right? It's the spirit of it. So when we feel like giving a free will offering to God, then we shout Corbin, and the heart of the matter is intact, but the material stuff, the offering itself, is of no interest to God. You can just simply keep it for yourself. Voila. Well, what if taking care of my aging parents is sapping me out of all of my quality of living? I wouldn't have it to provide, you know, and I wouldn't have it to, for myself in this way, and I've got to take care of my kids and my inheritance and my conscience. Oh, Corbin, my conscience is clear. Money goes in the pocket, and voila, after years of evolution and tweaking of trying to solve some difficult problems, the Jews had a new practice along with a new mindset, and a whole lot of it was standing clearly in the clear facing of the teaching of Scripture, and that's how, or potentially how, Things like this evolve over time with some real problems that they have to address and being practical and pragmatic in the process. And and all of a sudden, we have this problem where this practice, even in the name of God, where this practice, even by the religious leaders and elite, had completely displaced the clear teaching of the Word of God. And folks, that is going on all around the world today in pulpits. I was on a church website yesterday and it was giving a full delineation of the entire LGBT ministry uh, by one of the pastors who's dedicated to that particular ministry of the welcoming of this community, ministering to the community as faithful members of their church, and, and on and on it goes. And there's church after church after church after church. And you say, well, how did they get there? And it's exactly like this. We can look around at the Roman Catholic Church today, and we see so many obvious problems with their tradition that has blatantly trumped the Scriptures. Just like the Jews' oral tradition has trumped Uh, the Word of God. But my main concern today is what is going on with us? Where have we gone wrong? Protestants who claim and who stand upon sola scriptura are in some ways and in some camps no better than the Jews or with their Mishnah or the Roman Catholics with their ecclesiastical traditional authority. We can be steeped in some new traditional mindset and very close to change. That's why there's so many divisions among the church and the Protestant sect. Or we can be guilty of the unnecessarily casting off the good traditions of our fathers when they have been good and helpful to us in the liturgies and pointing us to Christ. And Christ invites us to, to know the truth. That's what He was doing here. And when we know the truth, you can repeat it, the truth will... 
We can easily be a part of that lot who honor God with their lips, but our heart is far from Him. Those in the Reformed camp can articulate a very uh, precise theology with their minds and all the analytical nature, the nuances of the, of the decrees of God, and yet, in so doing, they may honor God with their lips, but their hearts may be far from Him. We can have our own applications of the principles and easily judge others because they don't apply the same principle in the same way. Or we can believe the principles with our heads, but never make any kind of committed stance to apply them with our lives while claiming to hold the principle, never application. You honor me with your lips. You deny me with your lives. There's a whole host of ways we dismiss the Word of God because of the strong emotive hold that we have onto the way we think or our practice or our tradition or that's just the way I'm going to be. And on the way we interpret righteousness rather than the tedious and humble wrestling with the Scriptures and allow them to instruct us to change, we reinterpret them which is a little more convenient or comfortable in the way that we have found our lives to have been lived out thus far. We don't like change. But we must always approach the attitude when we come to the Scriptures, Lord, change me. Change me. Change my mindset. Take away my idols. Show me what those idols are that I'm even unaware of and take them away. We must be about change in our sanctification and be open to the Scriptures to allow God to change us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not resist the Holy Spirit, is what the Scriptures would exhort. Lord, show me where I'm going astray. The way I think and interpret my life, and the way I look at life, and my mindset that I have. Lord, change me. Change the way I live to be more in conformity with Your will and the image of Your Son. That's what we need to be. So don't get so set in your ways or be a person who desires to just be different. Be a different person from the world. Be different in the way that God has made you peculiar in His holiness. You want to continue to be given yourself to being changed. And not so set in your ways that you completely dismiss the Word of God when someone brings a new thought or a new Scripture to bear and you just quickly dismiss it out of hand without really realizing perhaps maybe all of the rubbish that have been piled up in your life so that you are not clearly seeing the truth. And you, even in an incarcerated sense, do not recognize that you are bound. We've never been in bondage to anyone, the Pharisees would say, when he says, we will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We've never been in bondage. 
their tradition had such a hold of them, their practices, their liturgies that they had grown up in and been catechized in as a child. They grew up in these things, even for generations deep, and they were not even realizing how far away they were from the truth and how incarcerated they were and bound in their sins. And that can be true for you as well. Let's be people of the Word. Let's hang on to those traditions that that continue to liturgize us to hang on to the Word. Let's find out what they're there for and what, they're, what, what they are in, encouraging, but let's make sure we distinguish between application and principle. Let's live these things to the truth of the Word of God and give ourselves to the Gospel and all of it, because when it gets down to it, that Gospel is grace that brings us up on the knife edge, and that's not easy for us to maintain. We have to come all the way up to the knife edge. It's all of grace. And yet we tend to easily fall over into a liberty to sin or we just don't come quite up far enough and we feel like we've got to work it the west of the way with our works. Romans 6 and 7 is what that's all about. The knife edge. Not only in our doctrine, but in our practice. Let's give glory to God for revealing the truth. And by the truth, he sets us free. For Christ is the way. Christ is the truth. Christ is our God. Our gracious Father, we're thankful for the gospel that does not leave us where it finds us, but ever is changing us from glory to glory into the likeness of our Savior Jesus. And we pray that you would bless the preaching of the word, the reception of the word, that we would not be stuck in our old ways if those ways bring a mindset that is contrary to the Word, or if the ways themselves find are displacing and supplanting the very truth of the Word of God. So we commit these things into your care, asking that your Spirit make specific application to our individual lives and to the life of this congregation corporately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.